0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. It's very interesting when you hear yourself being introduced, and even though I wrote that, I sort of listen to it, and I just think, is that really true? <laughs> <laughs> um, and then I also think, oh, I should have put that in there, or I should have taken that out, and nobody wants to know about that. Or, you know. So it's very interesting when you... Uh, visit places, and get introduced. Uh, Today, I'd like to talk a little bit about embodiment. Um, A lot of my work and my interests stem around and sort of live in the realm of undoing patriarchy, undoing white supremacy, and undoing the capitalist influences in my life. And... um, And so uh, for me, when I started to practice, I started to sort of, you know, living in a body that's riddled with trauma and sort of been abused a little bit. And I came to practice and uh, and they were saying, sit down and watch your breath. Well, for me, watching my breath meant I was going to leave my body. And it wasn't until about uh, 2003 or or 4 when somebody actually said, no, you can actually pay attention to something else. And I started to sort of think about what it meant to practice in a body that operates like mine. And, um, And that developed into this idea of embodiment, which is, uh, to take my place inside the skin bag in this moment and and to to live out the Dharma from that place so what is it to sort of have the experience I'm having when I'm having it underneath all of the training and socialization and ideas and opinions and uh, stories about how it's supposed to be or how I'm supposed to be or how the world's supposed to be. Underneath all of that, what's it like to be me? So for me, embodiment is sort of this practice of undoing those stories, those ideas, the ways in which I've been socialized the ways I've been taught to think about the causes and conditions that bring me to this place. Uh, so when I was at the monastery in uh, Carmel Valley called Tassajara, some of you may have been there, um, in the fall and in the winter, they sort of lock us up and uh, <laughs> we don't get to go anywhere. Um, and I was having a particularly rough time because I was really angry. And I was angry because the disabilities in my body were becoming really difficult. The weather sucked. It rained for about a month straight. And um, I was sick of being muddy. And uh, I wanted clean clothes. And I wanted to eat what I wanted to eat. and. Um, my body didn't feel good, and I hated all the people. <laughs> Interesting thing. You, you think, okay, I'm going to go away for three months and, and practice with all these people, and I'm going to be, you know, and I've been practicing for a long time, so I thought, oh, I'm going to be this, like, bastion of practice, and then you get there and you realize, oh, my God, I'm here. <laughs> like, all the, all the things I thought I was going to leave in town <laughs> were packed in my luggage. Which really sucks, let me just tell you. So, um, so I was there and I was really angry and I, and I kept going to my teacher and, and asking him for a prescription to sort of like, how do I do this, right? Because you're sitting a lot. And I don't know if you've ever tried to sit when you're angry um, and don't want to be angry, but it's really hard you know, and, um, and I was having a lot of anxiety. And, and I'd go to my teacher, and he wouldn't really tell me anything. He would just sort of be like, okay. And I was like, I need, ant- like, I want you to fix this, right? And then I was talking to a friend of mine, and, um, and she said to me, well, what if you just were angry? What would happen? Like, what would happen if you meditated angry? Or did your work angry? And just were angry? (coughs) Given the causes and conditions of your life and what's going on for you right now, I'd be pissed. And I was like, oh, wait, okay. The problem wasn't my anger. The problem was that I had some feeling about it. I had some expectation about who... I should be, I'd practiced a long time and I thought I had cut off the root of that stuff and, um, and I was all good to go. And then you wake up and you're like, oh wait, I'm just a dude, right? Like I'm just a guy. And, um, and so I started to think about that. Like, what was really the problem? When I was having a difficulty, what was really the problem? And over and over and over again, it was not what I thought it was. The problem always came down to my not wanting to be in my body and having the experience I'm having. You know, and, and so I started to sort of try to th- to look underneath that stuff and to try to just kind of come to some kind of equanimity with the fact that I'm just a person and that this is a part of life and these tapes and these stories that have been embedded through centuries into my DNA are not going to disappear just because I think they should. And so... I started this practice of just trying to stay in my body in those moments. Of those moments of recognizing my privilege. Of those moments of, of recognizing my commitment to the patriarchy. Those moments of recognizing my own internalized oppression around disability and, um, and thinking how it is I'm supposed to be in the world. right? I wear this robe, I have these vows, I should be a certain kind of way. And then I would find out that I'm, I'm still an asshole sometimes. <laughs> and that really bothered me. But when I started to not... One, one thing that, that happened, when I started to sort of look underneath the stories and the socialization and try to get to some kind of relationship to what it is the experience I'm having in this moment one of the really amazing things that started to happen was that I didn't get dragged around by those feelings anymore or those socializations anymore. I didn't have to respond from that place, right? So my anger didn't lead me into situations where I would have to go back and apologize later. Didn't drag me into situations where I couldn't be myself and bring my whole self into this encounter because I was just allowing myself to have the experience I'm having while I'm having it, it stopped needing to demand my attention. And just that was such a great relief for me, right? Like to be able to not have to, like, so much of my life, it was just, that's what I had, you know, like, that's, you just sort of get impulsed or impaled to do these things. And I stopped being dragged around by this stuff and realizing, like, oh, my gosh, I actually have agency about how I want to be in the world. When When I start taking up my own space and being in my own place and not letting anyone, including myself, define that, it was a really extraordinary moments of liberation. And, and, my, and also what happened was I started to notice more and more the ways that my whiteness and my uh, maleness and my privilege and all of that stuff sort of, I started to see how it operates in my life. What are the ways that I'm committed to these systems, right? Because we know that that it's systems of oppression that are really the problem, but it's a personal kind of thing. We all are responsible for taking responsibility for that, right? So there's the system of the patriarchy, but I enact it, right? Um, I choose to hear or not hear the women in my life. or lift up voices of women in my life. So I started to see, by just this simple act of trying to peer underneath those layers of socialization and stories and ideas and opinions, I started to see something close to connection to reality. Right? I started to get somewhere close to being able to sort of Make choices. Now, it doesn't always appear that way, right? I have good days and I have bad days. Last weekend, I was yelling at somebody across the park for being an asshole, and um, and I stopped myself in the middle, and I just thought, "What? What are you doing? Like, they're not even paying attention anymore, but everybody else is, right? Like." what what so this idea of embodiment like how do I take my place how do I come to peace with living in a body that's disabled that you know um, doesn't work the way I think it should work (laughs) or I want it to work or the way it worked yesterday you know um, the body that is aging and that's contributing a whole bunch of other stuff to my chronic illness and, and how how do I play that out? And how do I make choices about how to be in the world and take care of myself? So it's very interesting this practice of embodiment. But I think that if we really want to create healthy and healing communities, if we really want to create the kinds of world that we want to live in, that's where we have to start, because we have to start being friends with ourselves, because the other thing that happens is, is you start to realize what, how it is that it, I talk to myself about myself. I went a whole year without looking at myself in the mirror thinking that it was some sort of deep spiritual practice when really it was just I didn't like my fat ass. Right? And I can dress it up in this nice little I'm getting rid of the self. Um, which is a lovely story. Not true, but it was a lovely story. No, no, I have... A so, you know, I think that, I think that um, we find ways to sort of circum, circumvent our old patterns. And we just, can I take up my space? I don't want to take up anybody else's space. I don't want to take up more space than I need or should. I've done that enough in my life. But I need to take up my space, right? Right? And I need to be able to be in my space fully. Because that's the way that... Um, so, there's a old Zen master named Dogen who lived in Japan somewhere around the 13th century. And um, he said to expound the Dharma with this body and mind as foremost. And I know that because my one of my heroes, when I started practicing. Zen was this guy named Lou Hartman and it was written on the back of his robe, his work, this thing, this funny little bib we wear. And and when I was being particularly foolish, he would often flash it to me. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, we're expounding the Dharma all the time because we're living out what we believe. We live out our deepest intentions. Hopefully. But first we have to find out what those are, right? Like we have to find out what. how is it I want to be in the world? Who is it I want to be in the world? And how we get there is by taking our place, doing the heavy lifting, the emotional labor of undoing those things in my life that don't serve that purpose. And the only way to undo those things is to get to know them intimately. To see them enacted and make choices about whether or not you want to keep doing that. And it's not all doom and gloom, because I also found out really cool things about myself. Like, my body's actually much stronger than I thought it was. You know, I can lift things, really. Um, that surprised me. <laughs> um, I think I'm incredibly charming and funny. Uh, other people agree with me, which is always nice. Um, you know, but th- like these are the things that we get to find out when we take our place. So I want to end with a poem, and then I'll um, we can play a game of stump the monk. <laughs> this poem's called "Keeping Quiet" by Pablo Neruda. Now we will count to 12, and we will all keep still. For once on the face of the earth, let's not speak in any language. Let's stop for a second and not move our arms so much. It would be an exotic moment without rush, without engines. We would all be together in a sudden strangeness. Fishermen in the cold sea would not harm whales and the man gathering salt would not look at his hurt hands. Those who prepare green wars, wars with gas, wars with fires, victories with no survivors, would not or would put on clean clothes and walk about with their brothers in the shade, doing nothing. What I want should not be confused with total inactivity. Life is what it's about. If we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving and for once could do nothing, perhaps a huge silence might interrupt the sadness of never understanding ourselves and of threatening ourselves with death. Now I'll count up to 12, and you keep quiet, and I will go. Thank you all for your attention and joyful presence. Uh, And now, uh, if you have questions, or think I'm full of crap, or whatever, um, this is a great time to bring it up. Could somebody give her a... Thank you. And would you tell me your name, please? Everybody struggles with that every time they <laughs> pick up the microphone um, yes you you really caught my attention when you were talking about not looking at yourself in the mirror uh. for a year, and I've noticed myself doing the same thing. Uh, I glance every once in a while just to make sure that my hair isn't going every which way, and I don't have something between my teeth but other than that, um I don't do it and So I'm I'm just curious if you could talk some more about why you decided... It sounds like you made a decision to do that. Or did it just happen? With me, it's just happening. To me, it just happened as well. I just dressed it up in this cute little outfit so I could look important. Like, I didn't want to admit that it was happening and that it was from a place of insecurity and not loving myself. So I dressed it when I noticed that it was happening, I started to call it something else so that it would be uh, dressed up in a cute little package that I felt okay presenting to the world and then, when I saw that that's what I was doing, I stopped doing it and I made it a practice to look in the mirror every day and try to look without a lot of, without the. the Stuff going off, right, without those alarm things, right, and the, the, the mental gymnastics that I would go through at looking at this image. And, um, and I still practice that somewhat. I don't necessarily do it every day, but I still sort of take time to look at myself, usually when I'm trimming my beard. Thank you. Tell me your name. My name is Phil. Hi, Phil. And I'd like to ask about um, how your practice overlaps with dealing with white supremacy. So uh, I was uh, raised in... A conservative, Christian, racist household, and uh, and I was 16, and I, I was a ver- part of my childhood. I spent a large portion of it disappearing into books, and so I was a voracious reader. And I came across a, book, a collection of essays in which, when I was 16, one of which was uh, James Baldwin on white people. And from that moment, after I finished that essay, I I realized, like, oh wait, I have everything I thought I knew was not true, and I needed to learn something else. And so I started uh, reading and studying and looking at that. And then, with my practice, and this practice, and the recognition that uh, that white supremacy is a problem, it's a white people problem that's enacted on people of color. And so, as I can take my place as a white male in the world and understand and own all of the causes and conditions that come with that and all of the ways that perceptions come out with that, I can start to make choices. Because I'm not, because I'm living in that place and I'm not at war with that place, I can then start to to. Make different choices because I'm not dragged around by white supremacy that's hidden from me. That's not to say I don't have moments when I go, "Oh shit, I just did that thing," right? But they're fewer and farther between, and um, and it and it is. It stems from this practice of embodiment. It comes from this place of. When I can live in my skin and not be at war with it, I'm not at war with anything, right? And I get to make choices about what it is that I want to uplift or do I want to fight with people, right? I begin to make choices about um, how I want to be in the world and I'm not so dragged around by these unconscious biases that I just sort of got installed, right? By family, by history, by... uh, schools and all of that, right? And so um, from that place, we get to undo it. And it's the same with the patriarchy, right? Like, I got taught a particular kind of way to be a man. I grew up on a horse ranch. so my And I was a sissy from the gate. So I was always a problem. And when I stopped sort of playing that game of pushing back against something or fighting against something and just took my place all of my relationships to that toxic masculinity and the patriarchy started to sort of... I started to have more choices because that's what comes when I can live in my own skin. Choices come. I'm not dragged around by this stuff, right? Um, so anger stops being the problem and my response to the anger becomes the problem, Right? Not being able to live with the anger becomes the problem. Not the anger itself. Because, you know, that's just shit I was, that's given my circumstances, how could you be anything but, right? And then you start to see all the stuff underneath the anger. Like grief and pain and loss and, you know and then you start to develop relationships to all of that stuff, and you become this complex person with complex thoughts and ideas and new, and you start to be able to have nuanced conversations that you because it 's no longer about being right or wrong it 's just about curiosity i 'm really curious about shit, all of it, all of it life what you 're thinking what i 'm thinking I get really curious when I do something, and one of my friends comes up and tell me oh, you hurt my feelings or you did this thing and it was a little misogynistic or, you know, I'm really lucky. I have people who love me dearly, who are generous enough to point out when I'm racist or uh, misogynistic most of the time. And, um, And I get really curious about that. Like, where did that come from? What's that connected to? How did I pick that up? What could I have done differently? Like, you just, if you can get curious about this stuff, you really start to see all of the ways that you can be in the world in different ways. And so, it's, I, it's why I call it undoing, because it's, it's an ongoing practice, and it has more to do with my own stuff. You know, it's my work. It's my work. And I think that um, white people and men need to do the work if we're going to really address the problems. and i could be wrong <laughs> anyone else we have 15 minutes so um uh, i'm concerned with the the fact that uh i often come down hard on myself as soon as i realize i've done something you know, absent-minded, stupid, mm-hmm. or, you know, whatever. I get to the car and every, I've locked the, ca- the house and, oh, and my mind was off and I didn't even think I needed this. And mm-hmm. Now I got to go back in. So, But there's that sort of half a second where I really come down on myself mm-hmm. and I'm trying to, you know, love myself and... And I can't get it any shorter or eliminated. Mm -hmm. Have you got any suggestions for that? See if you can get curious about it. Just be like, wow, where did that come from? That's really interesting. That story is really cool. Instead of sort of trying to think, oh, it's a, you know, oh, I shouldn't do that or that I have to fix it. Just see if you can get curious about it because it's trying to tell you something about your training, about those messages in our head, how you feel about ourselves. So if we can let it teach us by getting curious about it instead of thinking, oh, it has to go away, you know, instead of trying to find a prescription for it, can you just, like, notice it and think, huh, where did that come from? How did that get there? Whose voice is that? What's it like to, to hear that and, and start to, you know, what's it like to be me having that experience of hearing that tape play out, right? That curiosity can then lend us to um, understanding what it is that, that that has to teach us. Those moments are available to us for teachings. But we have to stop making them the problem and looking for a prescription to fix it. There's nothing in your life that needs to be fixed, you're absolutely perfect. And you're already enlightened. We just have to get curious about that stuff. Thank you. When I first started practicing, I'll tell a quick story. I started out in, uh, in a group in Howie C- Cohen's basement. Does everybody, anybody know Howie Cohen? So he used to have this group in San Francisco in his basement. And um, we would sit for a while, and then he would say a few words, and then we would leave. And, and the very first time I ever think I heard him speak, he, he said this thing that just pissed me off. And I, I think it's actually why I started coming to back to Buddhism, because he said nothing was broken, and absolutely everything was exactly the way it should be. And I got so mad at him that I needed... And I'm the kind of person that when I'm mad, I'm going to find out all I can and then I'm going to tell you why you're fucked up. (laughs) So I started coming around just to get that ammunition, right? (laughs) So that was in, you know, probably September of 95. And I'm still here. (laughs) I don't have any real ammunition. And I'm telling myself and other people that, Nothing's broken. We just think it is. Somebody over here. Oh. Hi. Thank. You. I'm, my name is Ben. Thank you for your your honesty and your clarity. Um, I was hoping you could describe in a little bit more detail the feeling of being, in, in a state of of being embodied in in the present. you described some aspects like curiosity and I think it would be useful to track that state. What are some things to look for? Sure. Okay, so how about if everybody just takes a minute to get comfortable? And just find a place within yourself that you can bring your attention to. Maybe it's your breath. Maybe it's the bottom of your feet touching the earth. And see if you can feel what is happening in that place. What's the nature of that experience? Is that place hard or soft? As you bring your attention, does it expand or contract? What's the experience in your body of that place? The physical mental sensations that arise. And because our minds are meant to think, you may notice thoughts that arise in conjunction with that attention that you're bringing to that space, or in conjunction with the sound of my voice, or your feelings about this exercise. What's it like to be the person experiencing those thoughts? Not so much the particularities of the thoughts, but just what's it like for you to be that person? What's it like for you to be you underneath those ideas and those perceptions? you can open your eyes. So when I'm having a particular feeling or a particular difficulty, I teach a day-long class on sex and sexuality and practicing with sexual energy. And one of the exercises we do is we do that exercise, but we bring up desire. I think in Buddhism, desire often gets a bad rap. So it's great to sort of use this, uh, this practice of, of paying attention and getting curious with this idea of desire. Because we can start to sort of get underneath our stories about our desires and get to something about a relationship with our desire. And then we can start to practice with it. But did that help you find out something? A little bit? Um, and I would say just continue to do that. When you think about it, just get curious. Like if you find yourself in an argument with somebody, stop for a minute and just think, what's it like to be me right now? What's happening in my body? Where do I feel this stuff in my body? What's happening? Oh, and what's it like to be me? Because then we can start to see the ways that anger and self-righteousness and, uh, our, and our own desires about how we think things ought to be or our trainings about how things ought to be come into play. And we start to, if we can get curious about those things instead of necessarily um, buying into them right away, we can start to make choices, different choices. So it's always good to just occasionally stop yourself and go, "What's it like to be me? What's the nature of my experience?" Not so much about the particularities, but what's what's the nature of this experience? right now um, and you just do that a lot <laughs> I was once learning how to play one of the many instruments in a Zen temple and Lou Hartman my hero from earlier was teaching me some things and then making adjustments to my form and things like that and then at some point he just looked at me and he said alright now do that for 30 years and he turned and he walked away <laughs> um, so that's the my feeling about this is just and now do that for thirty years and you know because I still find moments of amazement at what I find there when I take the time to just do that. Um, yeah. Time for one more. Hi. Hi, I'm Brooke. Hi, Brooke. Um, I'm curious to hear your perspective, because in your intro and as you were speaking, you mentioned that you identify as a person with a disability, Uh Um, and I um, also am living with a chronic condition, um, and I've noticed for myself that um, it's pretty rare that I choose to identify um, outwardly Mm -hmm. with um, my disability Um, and that when I do sort of claim it, it's usually from a place of, um, either like marginalization and wanting to highlight that Mm -hmm. or from like a place of highlighting what I've overcome or been able Mm -hmm. to overcome. So a little bit of like the, the hero thing. Yeah. I'm curious for you how you approach sort of claiming that aspect of who you are, especially given that with disabilities, it could change and Mm -hmm. evolves, um, and mine has, you know. And um, I'll say that um, I, the reason I include it is specifically because I think that it's human nature. We either want to be the hero or the victim. And so anytime I can interrupt my own commitment to that narrative, so I just put it out there. You know, my, my disability is often hidden. And um, living in community, it was really difficult because people didn't see me as disabled, even though it limits certain things that I can do. And, you know, um, I eventually couldn't sit cross-legged anymore. And then I couldn't sit Seiza anymore. And now I'm sitting in a chair. And for Zen people, that's like... <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, I had to spend a lot of time going... <laughs> so... Um, so part of it is that sort of owning it and sort of because it's a hidden disability and because it's easy for me to either be a hero or a victim. Um, but the other piece of that is that I had to find a way to live in my body with the weirdness that sometimes happens, right? So for instance, I have chronic pain and have for 30 years. There's not a moment in my life when my there's not pain happening in my body. And so, but I've learned how to manage and deal with it. So, you know, I can look really normal when I want to. Uh, and um, and that comes at a cost sometimes, but it's also like, you know, I live in a capitalist society where production becomes important and, you know, my landlady likes for me to pay the rent, so I have to, you know, function somewhat. So, Yeah, you know, like we we learn how to be in relationship to our bodies exactly as they are in each moment, knowing that it's constantly changing anyway. You know, even with even the people without disabilities, their bodies are constantly changing. You know, and um, and so, yeah, that's how I, I approach it. I think part of this embodiment practice is really like okay well how do i live in, i can't i can't live constantly bitching about the pain that's happening in my body so i have to find a way to live with it right so what's that like what's it like to live without fighting the pain but also knowing that it's never not going to you know the likelihood is i will die in pain <laughs> you know like it's likely never to go away and what does that mean for me? Right? And how do I live in a body with pain? And, you know, whatever the, the the things associated with your disability, like, how do you live in that body? Given the restrictions of it, given the imperfections of it, but also given the, you know, the greatness of it. Like, there's, there's definitely um, been huge benefits to my practice. I understand suffering like no one's business. So I can sit with people in hospice and meet them in their grief. I'm an amazing chaplain. I really am. And it's because I spend a lot of time living in this, <laughs> living in this skin bag that you know uh, wasn't always going to be alive. So there's also a way to sort of, when you make peace with it, you can start to then use it. It becomes a ground of awakening, and um, and that's really beautiful. And um, with that, it's nine o'clock, and um, like all good Buddhists, we're going to end on time. <laughs> uh, I do want to thank you all very much, and uh, may you be well.